Welcome! Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We're so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for coffee and donuts at 9.30. We look forward to connecting with you. Well, good morning. My name is Paul Joslin, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff. And um, I just have to start out today um, with a little family business. Um, I've got to be honest, most of you know that I'm a Cowboys fan, and most of you are Broncos fans, and yeah, you knew this was coming, had to. I'm not saying anything about the game today, I didn't even know they were playing until someone just said, we're not going there, um, but I just have to say it's been a little quiet from you Broncos fans this year. The trash talking that I heard so much of last year, I just it's been kind of like cricket, so I don't know what's going on there, um, if we need to talk about that, but I feel like we could address it. I don't know if it's because um, our records are kind of inverted right now, the Cowboys are five and two, the Broncos are the, the opposite of that, whatever that is. And um, someone last night, a, a teenager, he came up to me after, he was like, oh yeah, well, well how, do you, uh, how do you spell Dallas? And I was like, what? And he goes, you have to have two L's. And um, so I was trying to say that we're losers. And if I was on my game, I wasn't. But if I was on my game, I would have said, yeah, better to have two L's than five. So um, there it is. Always comes later to me, the trash talking. I don't know if you're like that. Uh, but, you know, I do know that Cowboys have um, two quarterbacks. If you're looking for one, there's probably two on our roster that are better than yours. So, all right. That, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. I felt like that one went too far. Like, we, you were with me, like, oh, all fun and games. And he was like, whoa, we're paying him $52 million. That's not funny. Um, all right, so that's enough of that. Um, I just, I've been waiting for a couple of weeks for that, and it, it felt like the right time. So um, and it goes against everything for Preaching 101, which is like build a bridge with your audience, and I just burned all those bridges. So um, we'll see if any of you listen to me the rest of the time uh, today. We are diving in. We're continuing our series on Acts, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8 today. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open up to Acts chapter 8, we're going to be walking through that story. Um, and what I would really like to do today, it's a fascinating story. I'm going to just kind of walk through the story, tell the story, try to pull a few things out to help the story make sense, um, and then kind of save all the, the exposition or, or kind of the things that we pull away from the story until the very end. Because I think there are two things that are happening in this story that are really important for us to, to kind of grab a hold of and understand understand what's going on and that apply to us. Um, but we're just going to jump in with the story, picking up where we left off last week. So Larry uh, had a great message last week. If you, if you missed it or you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, not right now, but um, you can go back later this week. And he talked about Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, which is kind of the, the, the persecution of the church and the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was a person who had been called into ministry uh, by the apostles to take care of the widows of the church. And as he's doing that ministry and as the gospel is reaching more and more people in Jerusalem, opposition arises from the Jewish council, the Jewish leadership, and they bring Stephen in before them, and he gives this amazing, amazing sermon where he ties the person of Jesus and the story of Jesus back all the way to Abraham and Moses and David and shows the story of how God is working in the world through the person and movement of Jesus Christ, and he's stoned for it. He comes to the end of this message and he says, how long will you people refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit? 
How long will you reject what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world? And that's an important question as we dive into the next chapter. So he asks that question. They reject his teaching. They reject the movement of the Spirit. They take him outside of the city. They stone him to death. And then in Acts chapter 8, we're told that a great persecution arose in Jerusalem. And in fact, many believers were pushed out of the city. They fled the city because of what was happening. We're told there was a person named Saul who was out to destroy the church. And in this movement, he saw it as a heresy against Judaism. And so there's this scattering that happens of believers at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And then it moves to a person named Philip. Now, Philip is kind of a a very minor player in the book of Acts, but he gets his moment to shine, his 15 minutes of fame in Acts chapter 8, because he's one of the people who has to flee Jerusalem um, because of the persecution there. And where we pick up his story um, begins in verse 4. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 4. And if you don't, uh, you can follow along with me on the screen. So he says this, Luke says this about what's going on in Acts 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, signs is another word for miracles or or ways that the spirit was moving to, to heal people, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in the city. Now, if you are familiar with the Gospels or the book of Acts or have been in church for very long, you probably know that that word Samaritans is kind of a loaded word. The the area of Samaria, a lot has been said about the relationship between the Jews um, and the Samaritans. And basically it's this, that the Samaritans were were kind of a a half-breed of Jews. They were were considered the lost people of Israel because several hundred years before Jesus, they had intermarried and mixed and mingled with other races. And so they had some Jewish customs, but they had really kind of like um, been colonized by Assyria and Babylon. And and so they were worshiping a different uh, worship place and they had a different temple. And and there was a lot of hatred and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And there was racial tension and there was religious tension at work between these two places. But you'll also maybe remember that when we started the book of Acts, we said that the big idea of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives the commission to the disciples, and this is what he tells them to do. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here in Acts chapter 8, because of this persecution that broke out against the church, is the beginning of the fulfillment of this movement. The apostles and the disciples, they've been preaching in Jerusalem. People have been coming to the faith. But so far, everything that's happened in the book of Acts has all taken place within the confines of Jerusalem. Now it's going out and it's reaching Samaria. And there's this animosity, this racial tension, this religious trauma that's happened, and there's been violence between these two people groups. And so it's kind of remarkable that Philip shows up and begins preaching the gospel in this area where there's so much hatred and vitriol between these two people groups. In fact, it's probably like what some Broncos fans feel about me as a Cowboys fan right now, okay? Except maybe times like 10. Like it's just this intense, intense frustration and anger and violence. 
And yet Philip shows up, preaches the good news of Jesus, the Holy Spirit accompanies him, miracles take place, they come to faith, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Just a a little context for for kind of the animosity or the the anger that took place between these two groups. There's an interesting story in the book of Luke, which is kind of the, the prequel to the book of Acts. And Luke tells us a story about how when Jesus was, it's just this really weird kind of throwaway story. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and as he's going to Jerusalem, he goes through the area of Samaria, and he asks the town if they'll receive him and let him stay with them, and they reject him. And one of his apostles, John, comes to Jesus and he hears how they've rejected Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, what if we just, um, what if I just kind of call down some fire from heaven on the Samaritans to just kind of destroy them and wipe them out? And Jesus rebukes him, but it gives us just a little bit of an insight into what this relationship was like. It was like, they, they just reject Jesus and Luke is ready to do the nuclear option. And like, let's just blow them up and get rid of them. And that's the type of relationship and hatred that existed between these two people is any slight. It's like, let's call down violence and have God wipe them off the face of the earth. Jesus rebukes John in this moment and says, no, that's not what we're going to do. And they go throughout Samaria and Jesus heals and works with people of Samaria. And now we see his disciples picking up with that same mentality. And what's fascinating is as the Samaritans, as they begin to believe and as they're baptized in the name of Jesus, The apostles who are still in Jerusalem hear about what's going on and feel led by the Spirit to go check it out and look at what's happening. And this is what Luke tells us about their encounter. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now there's an interesting pattern that happens in the book of Acts where the gospel is preached and Jesus is proclaimed. People come to faith, believe in the name of Jesus and then the Holy Spirit descends and people begin to perform signs and wonders and speak in tongues and there's like this outward manifestation of the reception of the gospel. We see it at Pentecost, we see it later in Acts chapter 10 and 11 and on into the ends of the earth as the gospel is proclaimed but here the pattern is broken. And here the pattern is they receive, they hear the gospel proclaimed, they receive, they believe, they're baptized, and the Spirit doesn't come. And the question you have to ask is why is the pattern broken? Why does Luke call that out? And I think what Luke is getting at, what he's trying to help us see, is that there was so much tension, so much animosity, so much hatred between Jewish community and the Samaritans that the, the Holy Spirit delayed coming to these new believers in this moment because there was reconciliation that needed to take place between these two communities. That the apostles, Peter and John, had to kind of, if you will, give their stamp of approval or, or baptize what was happening. They had to, to show that they themselves were listening to the movement of the Spirit of God. And where for so long the people of Israel had rejected or not listened to the Spirit, the apostles are open to what the Spirit is doing and joining the Spirit in this moment of reconciliation. And, and there's this amazing posture shift, attitude shift between John who prayed for fire from heaven to come down and destroy his enemies, is now praying for the Holy Spirit's fire to come down and empower them. 
that they could be believers in Christ and minister the gospel to their community. And there's this incredible posture shift of reconciliation that the marginalized, the outsider is welcomed in and the apostles say, this is what the Spirit's doing and so we will follow. And I think it's an important thing for us to recognize because I think sometimes we have this idea about ministry or evangelization that, that it's all about changing other people's hearts to accept Jesus. But sometimes the way God reaches the lost or the, the lost people in our world is by changing our hearts for the lost. The places where there had been animosity or frustration or vitriol or even violence, God changes our hearts and calls us to those very people, not so that we could destroy them, but so that they could be empowered with the same spirit and the gift that we have received. And so Peter and John, they lay hands on people, receive the spirit, signs and wonders happen, and everybody's rejoicing because of the work that the spirit is doing. And Peter and John, they say, this is great, this is going well, so we're going to go back to Jerusalem, and as they go, they preach the gospel throughout the villages in Samaria. But an interesting thing happens kind of in this story, is we're introduced to a person named Simon the Sorcerer. And Simon the sorcerer is a Samaritan, and he's someone who has a large following from Samaria. We're told that he's uh, someone who can perform signs and wonders, but it's not through the power of the Holy Spirit or God. He considers himself a God, and he has some sort of magical power. And so he's performed signs. He's got a large following. People are drawn to him. They want to follow him because of what he can tell them and what he can do for them. And he sees Philip, and he says, wow, that's that's something more than what I have. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's one who believes and is baptized. And then he sees John and Peter laying hands on people. And he sees the Spirit descending and the things that are happening to people who receive the Spirit. And he said, man, I want that power. But instead of believing the Spirit is a gift from God that he can receive, he believes the Spirit is something that he can, can kind of manipulate or use for his own advancement, his own benefit. And so he goes to Peter and John and he says, hey, I love what you're doing. If I give you enough money, would you maybe teach me how to do that same thing? And Peter, there's a fascinating thing that happens throughout the book of Acts where there's a number of times where the the gift of the Holy Spirit is linked to money and people who try to use or manipulate the Spirit for their own benefit, for their own profit, for their own agenda. And that's not something that's really foreign to us, right? Like many of us have probably seen the televangelist who said like, hey, if you send me a bunch of money, then I will pray for your healing and the Holy Spirit will show up and heal you. And meanwhile, they have a mansion and a private jet that takes them wherever they wanna go. We're not unfamiliar with people who have manipulated or abused the Holy Spirit. And that's what Simon is doing in this moment. He's wanting the power of the Spirit for himself And Peter has a very strong rebuke for him. This is what Peter says to him. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. See, Peter sees this interaction with Simon. He actually, he, he knows that he has accepted Jesus and that he's been baptized. But Peter says that it's a false convert. It's someone who, who only came to Jesus for their own benefit, for their own agenda. That he was more interested in the power of the Spirit in his life 
than God's actual rule and reign in his life. He was more interested in what Jesus could do for him than truly accepting Jesus as his savior. And so Peter calls him out and tells him to repent of this wickedness, that you cannot manipulate the spirit or the power of God. The spirit exists for the advancement of God's kingdom, not our own agendas. And some of us, we have this, this kind of tricky relationship with the Spirit because we've seen it abused, that we're almost kind of conscious or self-conscious about the work of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in a, in a culture where it was the, the Trinity was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, not the Holy Spirit, because we didn't quite know what to do with it. We were uncomfortable with it. And, and Peter does not abandon the Spirit in this moment. He still prays for the Spirit to be dispensed on these people and for them to receive it. But he says there's caution around how we engage with the Spirit. It's not this impartial force that we can just use for our own agenda. And so he rebukes Simon, and it's fascinating. We're not really told what happens to Simon. In fact, he doesn't repent in this moment. He just asks that Peter would pray for him. And he says, would you just pray for me so that I wouldn't be punished, so that what you said won't happen to me? Again, he's kind of worried about himself in this moment. And we're told later from church history and, and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus that actually different heresies that were kind of enemies of the church or that rose up against the church and, and kind of confused teachings of the church, a lot of them originate with a person named Simon the sorcerer. And so there's this relationship that Luke is saying that, man, there's people who will say they are following Jesus and yet use him and use the spirit for their own benefit. And they will lead you to worship false gods. In fact, the words that Peter uses to rebuke him, they are full of poison and bitterness, are the same words that Deuteronomy used for people who were kind of leading the people astray to worship false gods. So it's this really strong kind of argument against what Simon is doing. And it, it's nestled right in between these two stories of the Samaritans. And then it goes on and, and John and Peter leave the scene and it picks back up with Philip. And this is what it says about what Philip is doing. So he has this ministry to the Samaritans. And then we're told in Acts 8, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Now, a couple of things. As this story is introduced, Luke is trying to make it abundantly clear that it is what is happening in this story. Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch is not just some whimsical thing that he decided to do on his own. The, the word, the angel of the Lord, only appears a couple of times in the book of Acts, and every single time is trying to very clearly, like big bold letters across the page, say what is happening here is the will of God. God wants this to happen. And so God tells Philip to go to the desert road, and while he's there, now just imagine that for a moment. You, you have this amazing ministry going on in Samaria. There, there are hundreds of people coming to faith in Jesus. Signs and wonders are being proclaimed in these villages. And then all of a sudden, God says, hey, can you just go out into the middle of the nowhere, and um, I'm not really going to tell you why or what's going to happen. 
And Philip, led by the Spirit, goes into the desert and encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. And it's really important. There's a couple of details that Luke gives us to kind of clue us in on who this person is. The first is that he's an important official from the country of Ethiopia. Um, So he's an African official from a a country, and he um, is probably someone who is very wealthy and is very powerful. And not only that, but Luke tells us that he is on his way back from Jerusalem where he has gone to worship, which, which likely indicates that this man is a Jewish convert, that even though he's a foreigner, he loves and believes in Yahweh, that he's someone who, who trusts Yahweh and is, even though he's a foreigner, has come to faith in the Jewish God, and that he has traveled to Jerusalem to, to worship God at the temple. And so he's not some foreigner who's never heard of Yahweh, doesn't know the scriptures. In fact, he's reading a scroll that he has himself, which would have been very hard to obtain. And so as he's on his way home, he's reading this book. And what we have to understand is that his journey from his homeland to Jerusalem would have been about 1,500 miles It would have taken him about five months to get to the temple where he wanted to worship Yahweh, the God that he believed in. But because he was an Ethiopian, he was a foreigner, and because he was a eunuch, when he got to the temple courts, to the temple gates, the guards there would have refused him and told him he could not enter. Because there's verses in the law that say no one who's been castrated or no one who is a eunuch will be allowed to enter the temple to worship Yahweh. And so you can just imagine the disappointment from this person who's traveled for five months, 1,500 miles, just so that he can worship the God he believes in, to be rejected at the gates. And in fact, it, it probably clues us in to a little bit about his fate, because if, if a foreigner wanted to become a Jew and they wanted to convert to Judaism, then they had to not only go to the temple, but they had to be baptized at the temple in a ceremony for ritual purity to to kind of cleanse themselves and convert to Judaism. And because he was a eunuch and an Ethiopian, he would have been denied this right. So he believes in Yahweh, he wants to worship Yahweh, and he's told that he is not welcome there. He's doubly excluded. And he's reading a, a story from Isaiah that we call the story of the suffering servant. But just knowing that is the circumstances around this eunuch's life, I want you to listen to the words that he's reading, that Philip hears him reading out loud. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, knowing his circumstances, knowing his situation, can you understand the question that he asks Philip? Who is this prophet talking about? Is it himself or is it someone else? And there might even be a hint in this question of, I identify with this person. I am someone who has experienced humiliation. I have been taken before people and deprived of justice. I am like someone who's been led to slaughter and has been mutilated. You can hear his heart's cry in this question of, of, is there a place for me? Am I welcome at the temple 
Does God see me? Is this scripture maybe speaking to my circumstances? And Philip takes this opportunity to say that actually the one who's experienced abuse and humiliation, the one who has deprived justice, the one who is led like a sheep to slaughter, the lamb who was slain is Jesus Christ. And Luke tells us that he opens up the scriptures and he points this story to the person of Jesus, which up until that point, this was not a messianic text. That the people of Israel who read Isaiah 53, they would have understood that as, as either a, a message about the people of Israel themselves and how God would lead them one day out of exile, but there was no understanding of the Messiah being a suffering servant. And yet Philip takes this opportunity and says, this is who Jesus is and this is what he has done. And in Isaiah 53 and 54 and 55 and 56, these narratives about the suffering servant, we are given promises about who this person will be, this person who will suffer and be slain on our behalf and what he will do to the world and how he will redeem the world. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 56. We don't have it on the words, but I just want you to hear these words. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and those who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain, and I will give them joy in the house of my prayer. You see, what Philip is telling this Ethiopian eunuch who has been on the outside, on the margins, of the people of God is that you have been excluded, but in Jesus' name, you are welcome because all are welcome the table of Jesus. And even though you have had this condition and even though you were considered a foreigner, even though you were considered that you were outside the bounds of God's grace, even though you were rejected at the temple gates, because of Jesus, the lamb who was slain, you are welcome into the house of the Lord. And what good news. And Philip, he hears this from, uh, or sorry, this, uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, he hears this from Philip. And as they're traveling along, they, they come to Gaza. And it's the last stop on his way home, the last stop before they get into the desert that has water. And so he sees the water there. They're probably stopping to Philip. And he, he turns to Philip and he says, if this is true, is there any reason why I could not be baptized? Remember, he's been rejected at the temple from baptism. And Philip gets out of the chariot with him and baptizes him in the name of Jesus. 
And then something weird happens where the spirit of the Lord just whisks Philip away. And the Ethiopian, he's so joyful. He, he's so excited about being accepted and welcomed. He doesn't even ask any questions. He's not like, what just happened? He's just so grateful and rejoicing that he's been welcomed at the Lord's house, that he has a place at the table, that God has accepted him. The person who is doubly excluded is fully welcome and accepted, that he's full of joy at what God has done in his life. And so what do we do with the story? What do we do with a story about Samaritans and magicians and Ethiopian eunuchs? I don't know about you, but I don't encounter many magicians in my day-to-day life unless I go to a, like a, a bad children's party or something, right? Like I don't encounter Ethiopian eunuchs in the grocery store. So, so what do we as the church in our present day do with this story? And what's the relationship between the Samaritans being welcomed into the people of God and an Ethiopian eunuch being welcomed into the people of God and the story of, of the spirit and manipulation of the spirit and the rebuke against that? I think there's two things that I'd like to pull out for us today. And, and the first is this, that Peter says to Simon that the gift of the Spirit is not something that can be manipulated or used for your own benefit. That the Spirit of God is a gift to believers and a gift to the church. It is God and it is a gift from God to empower the church for the advancement of his kingdom and for the building of his church. And it's not something that can be manipulated or used for our own benefit or our own agenda. The Holy Spirit is always subservient to the mission of God and his redemptive work in the world. I think some of us need that reminder. To be honest with you, I, I, I have a, a, a kind of trouble grasping the full theology of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does in the church. Like I said earlier, it's not something that I was familiar growing up with. And then I'm often hesitant to talk about the Spirit because I've seen the ways that the Spirit is, is abused or manipulated. And the ways that, the, that there should honestly be some caution about how we engage with the Spirit. Because people will use it to their own advantage and their own agendas to try to make things happen in the world. And not be... Uh, servants to God's will. So, so I get the caution around talking about the Spirit. But, but I think if Simon is someone who's using the Spirit for his own agenda, if someone who is self-serving, I think there are many of us who are so afraid of that, so cautionary against that, that, that we almost come to a place where we're afraid of the Spirit and don't engage with the Spirit, and we'd rather be self-sufficient in our relationship with Jesus and in our ministry than depend on the Spirit. The truth is that the, the church in America for a really long time has been really good at being self-sufficient as the body of Christ. We know all the things to do to, to kind of make the kingdom come. We know the, the right levers to push and pull so that people will come to faith. We know the ways to, to make sure the music crescendos at just the right moment to get the spiritual emotive reaction. I mean, we've seen churches manipulate people with music and fog machines and emotive, nostalgic preaching. And we've kind of baptized it and said, that's what's working, that's what's good. And we, we've forgotten that everything we do, whether it's serving downtown or in our food pantry or preaching from a stage, it is all dependent on the Holy Spirit. That we as the church of Christ, we cannot be self-sufficient 
if we want to see the gospel advance and God's kingdom come, that it is a partnership with the Spirit, that the Spirit is what is moving in our world. I I think some of us, we have this kind of awkward relationship with the Spirit where we're not quite sure how to invite the Spirit into our lives or or what the dance is with the Spirit. It's kind of like an awkward first date where you're trying to get to know someone and you don't know how the conversation's supposed to go. And so we just kind of shy away from engagement with the Spirit. And we just think, I'll learn all the things I need to learn, and I'll do all the things that I'm supposed to do. And we can get perfectly caught up in doing our relationship with Jesus completely apart from his indwelling presence of the Spirit. And the question I've been wrestling with this week is, if the Spirit is a gift of God, why are we so hesitant to embrace that gift? I think there's something that we're missing as a church in America where we think we don't really need the gift. We have the gift. As believers, we've received the gift, but we haven't opened it. We're just content to kind of hang on to it, but we're not really sure what to do with it. We're worried if we open it that we might go into like the desert and have to do some sort of weird thing because the Spirit calls us to go into some place we don't want to go. And I wonder how much of our faith has become dry or still or we felt distant from God because we've forgotten that we are to be in close communion with the Spirit. You see, what happens throughout Acts chapter 8 and really through the entire book of Acts is person after person comes into contact with the Spirit and is changed and transforms and takes the message of that gift of what Jesus has done and the power of the Spirit into the world to bring reconciliation and redemption. I wonder sometimes if we ask the question, where is God, what is God doing, why isn't he showing up? And it's because we've been self-sufficient and have not asked the Spirit to show up in our lives. And so just a heads up, we, we never do this at Waterstone, but at the end of service today, as we go into the last song, we're gonna have a moment of prayer where we'll have prayer people down here. And if you would like to experience more of the Holy Spirit in your life, we're just gonna have you come forward and just say a simple prayer with someone to say, God, I want to be filled with your Spirit. And it's nothing magical, there's no sorcery, there's nothing about coming up front that makes it like, oh, God will now do it for you, but, but it's a posture that we take to say, God, you have something I don't have on my own, that I need you in my life. So I think the the message in the story is that there is a gift available to us who are believers and the gift of the Spirit to empower us to reach the lost. Because that's the second thing that happens in this story is that what we see is people who have been marginalized, people who have been excluded from the faith, people who have been on the outskirts of Judaism because of the person of Jesus Christ are now welcome in the house of the Lord. That in the Holy Spirit, one of the the works that, that the Holy Spirit does in the name of Jesus is break down the barriers and boundaries and borders that humanity has used to divide ourselves. If you think about our world and all of the ways that we're content to divide ourselves, Left, right, American, non-American, Christian, non-Christian, white, black, brown, rich, poor. We have so many categories that we put ourselves into that that we say these people are over there and they're over there and I'm a part of them and they're not a part of. And all of those things 
in the name of Jesus, in his church, have no place within the body of Christ. We are a people who are united behind one person, the person of Jesus, and all other differences begin to fade. They're not erased, but they take secondary importance in the name of Jesus. And I wonder, for Waterstone, if Jesus came today, if the Holy Spirit, if we were open to the Holy Spirit working in our community, what boundaries or barriers might Jesus call us to tear down in his name? Where have we divided ourselves economically or politically or ethnically that Jesus says, I want you to be one people united under my name? My church, my house, my people is a space where all people are welcome, no matter their status, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their heritage, no matter whether they are married or single or have kids or no kids, all are welcome in the house of the Lord because of what Jesus has done in our lives. That's the message that we see in Acts chapter eight, is the power of the Spirit moving to break down barriers and walls so that people can come into relationship with Jesus. The question is, how do we experience that? How do we be a community that embodies that? I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to remember that we ourselves were welcomed. That there was a time in our relationship with God where we were the foreigner, where we were excluded, where we felt far from God. And that in Jesus, we have a suffering servant who not only died for us, but identifies with our pains and our brokenness and died to redeem those spaces in our lives so that we could be accepted by God. And you see throughout the book of Acts, people who continually were excluded, being welcomed into God's spaces, then going out and welcoming others into those same spaces. You see, it's no mistake that Philip was the one who went to Samaria. He himself was a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was considered a kind of second-class Jewish citizen. He was someone that was excluded culturally and, and linguistically because of the way that he worshiped and interacted with God. And yet in Jesus, he received full acceptance and he took that message of reconciliation to the people who had not experienced it yet to give them the good news of Jesus. And secondly, I think we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to receive the Holy Spirit so that we can take this message of reconciliation to the world. I love the ways that uh, theologian Beth Jones talks about a church that's open to the Spirit. She says, when Christianity is open to the Spirit and takes the work of the Holy Spirit seriously, we recognize that the gospel is about God's love for people who are marginalized in a world of sin. You see, what the Spirit tells us is that God does not care if we are rich or if we are poor or if we are a man or if we are a woman, if we are white or black or brown. God accepts all of us. And the Spirit empowers us to take that message of radical and revolutionary reconciliation out into the world. And so as we close today and as we go into the last song, if you are in a place where you want to receive, and you've already received if you believe in Jesus, but if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're gonna enter a time of prayer to ask you to come forward 
And the reason we come forward is not because there's anything magic in coming forward. It's just the posture that precedes the presence of saying, God, I need you. I want more of you in my life. And so we'll have people on the wings and in the front that are willing to pray with you. And it's a simple prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us with your power and presence. If you are hungry to experience more Jesus in your life, more spirit in your life, then I would encourage you to come forward and pray with one of our prayer ministers. Would you pray with me now as we close? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the good news that Philip preached, that all are welcome before you, that those who had previously been excluded, that in the person of Jesus, the promises of welcome are completed in him, that all of us can receive the gift of grace available in Jesus, that there's nothing in our past or our present or our future that prevents us from coming to you. God, there's nothing that we have done that we have left undone. God, there's nothing that has been done to us that your grace does not encounter and change and transform. God, may we be a people who remember that we have been welcomed. May we be a people who welcome others in this space. But through the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us and a gift to us that we could be a people who break down barriers and boundaries. God, I pray that, that just because we may have experienced some hesitancy or, or experienced ways that the Spirit has been abused, that we would not abandon the gift. God, may we be open to the work that you are calling us to the movement of the Spirit in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.